morning. Great to see you. Welcome to Westgate. Uh, if we've never met, my name is Jay. I'm a part of the team here. Welcome to Advent. Welcome to uh, Thanksgiving is over. Christmas is not yet here. And we are living in the waiting. And there's something so beautiful, so special. Whether you're a Christian or not, there's just something so special, almost some would say magical about this season. But for followers of Jesus, we know that uh, this is not, it doesn't hinge on magic. It's not a fairy tale. It's um, the story of a king that came and a king that is coming again someday. And it's the realest story in human history. So uh, whether you believe that or not, we are thrilled you're here. You don't have to believe what we believe. Uh, maybe you're here because a friend invited you. Maybe you're visiting family for Thanksgiving and they go to church. So here you are. Um, we're thrilled you're here. We're so grateful that you're here, and we hope that today fills you with some hope, and more than anything, we hope that today maybe sparks your imagination about the possibility that, again, there is a king who came and is coming again, and that life and life to the full is possible both now and on into eternity. Um, we are going to, I'll explain Advent here a bit more in a second, but we're going we're gonna to jump into this sort of journey, marching toward Christmas morning together as a church. And to begin that journey, I've got to, I want to share something and then ask a question. I have this um, recurring dream that I, pro I don't know, on average, I probably have some version of this dream uh, a couple times a month, once or twice a month. And the dream goes something like this. It involves all of you, actually. About once or twice a month, I have this dream that I am sitting somewhere in this room, getting ready on a Sunday to preach a sermon, to teach. And I get up here, like right here, I open my iPad, which always has my notes, and then my iPad is empty. I have like, and I'm just staring at hundreds of faces, staring at me, expecting me to say something profound, and I've got nothing. And it's a dream, it's not a dream, it's a nightmare. I have this nightmare, and often I wake up in a cold sweat. And um, I've heard, I've read that this sort of dream, not that exact dream, but the sort of fear of being unprepared is a fairly common dream. So I wanna ask a question, how many of us in the room have some version of the fear of being unprepared dream at least semi-regularly? How many of you all have that? Okay, wow, that's a good amount. Okay, so I Googled this, and what I've read on Google is that one in three Americans have some form of that dream on a semi-regular basis. I think looking at the hands raised, Google is correct, right? The statistic is accurate. Yeah, it's pretty common. We, and whether you have that dream or not, I think the fear of feeling unprepared is real, right? You think about the stress uh, that you feel when you've got a test or an exam coming if you're a student or some big work project and you feel behind and you're working late hours into, you know, like the wee hours of the night, all that stuff, the sense that uh, maybe you've got a presentation, you know, in the office um, for the higher-ups or something, and you feel this fear, this stress, sometimes anxiety about how things might go wrong, because being prepared is a big deal. Um, advent is, uh, the English word advent comes from the Latin word adventus, which is Latin for coming or arrival. It is the Latin translation of the Greek word parousia. Uh, a couple of years ago, we did uh, an entire series on a New Testament book called First Thessalonians, this letter. And that word, parousia, is like all over that letter, and it's actually all over the New Testament. The word parousia at the time of the Bible, like at the time of the New Testament, 
the time of Jesus, and then the time of Paul, who wrote about two-thirds of the New Testament, the word parousia was a political word. It was a word used to describe when Caesar, which is the title given to the emperor of Rome, and Rome was the dominant empire of the day, whenever the emperor of Rome would enter a city or a town, the herald would like blow a trumpet and they would declare the parousia of Caesar or the arrival of our emperor, the arrival of our king. And it was a political word meant to um, uh, essentially derive like applause and adulation for the coming king. And the early Christians took this concept and they essentially flipped it on its head. And they said, yeah, this is a big deal, parousia, the coming of the king. But the king we're all waiting for is not the Caesar. It's not the emperor of Rome or the president of the United States or any other earthly kingdom. We hinge our hope as followers of Jesus on the king who has come and the king who we believe will come again. That's Jesus himself. And so Christians for generations now have in particular spent the season of Advent, which are the four Sundays leading up to Christmas, reminding ourselves that no matter what we are going through, our hope, our deepest hope, hinges not on earthly empires or human intellect or technology or resources, but on a king who came and a king who is coming again. And so Advent is a season in which we remember that we, those of us who are followers of Jesus, live in this in-between space, deriving our confidence from the fact that Jesus, the Son of God, came once and deriving our hope from the reality that Jesus, the Son of God, our true and rightful King, is coming again someday. So that's Advent, Adventus, arrival, coming, right? We, We prepare our hearts in this season. And the real beauty of Advent is that as we prepare our hearts and remind ourselves of the confidence and the hope we have in the Jesus who came and the Jesus who is coming again, we also remember that as we prepare our hearts, God has been preparing. In fact, the fact that we celebrate Christmas at all is a reminder that God began preparations since the beginning of time. If you know a little bit about the Bible, and if you don't, that's perfectly okay, but what you, um, what you may know, if you are somewhat familiar with the biblical story, is that when you go to the very beginning of the Bible, this book called Genesis, which means beginning, um, in chapter three, everything goes wrong. Human beings rebel against God's plan for his glory and our good, and this nasty three-letter word called sin enters the story. But literally, as things go wrong, in the same chapter on page three of the Bible, God starts preparing. He says, someday I'm going to send someone who's going to make all the wrong things right. I'm going to send someone who is going to restore and renew all of the brokenness in our lives and in creation itself. And this someone is Jesus. And then throughout the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, you have these beautiful echoes of this prophetic vision of the one who God is going to send. And um, some of the most prominent uh, prophetic visions of, the G- of Jesus who would someday come 
are found in this ancient Old Testament book called Isaiah, and you heard a part of it read during our Advent reading. I want to read it for you one more time, the longer passage. This is Isaiah chapter 9. It says, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. And on those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. And you, God, have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. And here's the the part everyone knows and loves. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. These are four descriptors of Jesus, the sort of king he is, and what he will do, has done, and will do. And so for the next four weeks, you and I are going to journey together through this short mini Advent teaching series called Prepare Him Room by, um, we're ripping that line from the classic song, Joy to the World. Let every heart prepare him room. What we're going to do is we're going to spend a little bit of time identifying particular types of clutter in our hearts and minds that actually keeps us from creating the necessary space to prepare room in our souls, to remember and receive the gift of Christmas, which is that Jesus, our wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father and prince of peace, has come and is coming again. So today, to do that, um, we're gonna begin with mighty God. I do wanna point something out to you, though. We're not gonna take those descriptors in order. Um, We're gonna sort of, we're gonna begin with mighty God today and then go sort of all over the place, but we'll get to all four of them. There's a couple of reasons for that. One of the reasons is just a resource we want to give you. If you go to our website, we have an Advent devotional reader. It's free. It's available on our website. And they're short, brief readings, um, uh, short devotionals written by church leaders and pastors and writers and authors from all over the country um, in partnership with our friends at Christianity Today. And so it is available to you. And I would encourage you, go on our website or just scan that QR code and um, grab the PDF, the digital PDF. And I would just encourage you during Advent, every single day, it takes like three minutes to read each devotional. Spend three to five minutes of your morning or evening reading each uh, of the um, devotional entries. And I think it, it'll be, it's gonna be a beautiful way for us to just every day center our hearts on the gift that is uh, Jesus our King who has come and is coming Again, And so one of the reasons why we're going to take these descriptors out of order is because the order we are going to teach them in sort of syncs up with the devotional reading. So you'll be able to hear a teaching on Sunday and then during that week read some thoughts from different church leaders and writers from around the country who um, have some expanded thoughts on maybe what you heard on Sunday. Okay, so today we're going to begin with mighty God. What does it mean that Jesus who came and is coming again, is a mighty God. And how do we create space in our hearts and minds to prepare room for a truly a, a mighty God? 
There's a 20th century philosopher named Charles Taylor, and he coined a phrase, a term, uh, that he called the imminent frame, the imminent frame. It's kind of a fancy way of describing for Taylor. It's kind of a complex idea, but basically um, the gist of it is Taylor used that phrase, the imminent frame, to describe the sort of modern, Western, secular ideology that reality is purely physical and material. That there is no such thing as the spiritual or supernatural or transcendent. And he describes the imminent frame this way. He says that the imminent frame is the change that takes us from a society in which it was virtually impossible not to believe in God to one in which faith, even for the staunchest believer, is one human possibility among others. Now, here's what you need to know. This is a, an utterly modern concept. For the overwhelming majority of human history, the default belief was that there are spiritual, supernatural, transcendent realities that you cannot see, taste, or touch, or explain with human, natural, material explanations. Now, what modern people, especially modern secular people, will tell you is this. Well, all of those people, for almost all of human history, were idiots, And now we have science. That's what they will tell you. Now, I am not anti-science. I'm grateful for science. I love science, all of that. But is it possible that science isn't the answer to our questions, but rather science is what some of the answers look like to us right now? But secular ideology, the imminent frame, has no room for that. It's like, no, 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 we explained it. We figured it out, you guys. We have modern technology and we have answered every, every question. There is no mystery in the universe. There is no supernatural. It is only material, physical, natural. That's um, the imminent frame, according to Charles Taylor. Now, why is that important when it comes to the might of God, the fact that Jesus is a mighty God? Most people today, Christians included, believe because of the imminent frame, because that's the overriding dominant worldview that we are born into, we believe that if I can't, if it can't be fixed through natural, the natural order of things by human beings, through human intellect and ingenuity and creativity, then it can't be fixed. That's what most of us believe, Christians included. Yes, we show up to church and we sing songs about how mighty God is. But really deep down inside, Maybe you're not even aware of it, but most of us, deep down inside, what we really mean is God is metaphorically mighty. He's not literally mighty. Or we mean God is mighty out there, but he's not mighty right here. I'll put these on the screen so you could see them. Right? We mean things like God, um, God was mighty back then, but he's not mighty right now. Or sometimes some people believe, well, like, I'm mighty right? I'm mighty, and I don't need God's might. Yes, we sing songs about how powerful God is, how mighty Jesus is, how able and capable he is, but in reality, even Christians today are practical, functional atheists. That might sound offensive to you because you're like, oh, Jay, don't call me that. I'm not an atheist. I'm here, aren't I? I sing the songs, 
I'm listening to you babble on and on without getting up and walking out of here. You know, like, how can you call me an atheist? I'm not calling you an atheist. What I mean is, practically, functionally, in the way you order your life, in the way you think about your energy and your resources and your time, this is not just you. It is me too. Most people today, Christians included, are for all intents and purposes, practically functionally, atheists. We believe in our minds that God is able, but our bodies live in such a way that if any change is gonna happen, I have to make it happen. Now, what I'm not saying is that Christians should do nothing in the world and just pray. That's not what I'm saying. I believe prayer is more than words. I believe prayer is an embodied act of committing to whatever God is unfolding in your midst. Yes, saying the words to God, but also plunging your actual life into enacting, partnering with God to enact change. But I think, um, for the most part, again, most people, including Christians, are practical, functional atheists, and we see this prominently in the delta between our passionate reliance on human ability to enact change versus our lack of passionate reliance on the power of God. And I also believe, because this is my own experience, that this lack of genuine belief in God's ability, his might, the fact that Jesus is mighty, a lack of genuine embodied belief in that truth clutters our lives with deep hopelessness. Like deep, deep hopelessness. If I'm, if I'm just gonna be honest with you, my heart and mind, I mean, I, I can read all the books and all the Bible stories and do all the Greek studies about how mighty God is, how Jesus, the coming Savior, is a mighty God. I can do all of the study and believe it in my head, but if you actually look at my life and if you were to rip open my chest and see the reality of my heart, you would quickly realize many days my heart is full of hopelessness. Again, well, yeah, like I think God is mighty, but maybe he's just mighty out there, not right here. Yeah, I know Jesus is mighty, but maybe Jesus was mighty back then, but like right now? The Christmas story begins with a young, soon-to-be mother who prepares room in her heart, truly, for the might God. Luke 1, Mary, Jesus' earthly mother, she says, in fact, she actually sings, they think, my soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the what? Mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. When Mary sings these words, when she utters these beautiful poetic words, she has just been told by an angel that she is going to give birth to the Son of God. And make no mistake, some of us read Bible stories like that and we think to ourselves, um, well, yeah, I mean, she, she accepted that because this was 2,000 years ago and 
People were dumb back then. <laughs> they, they just thought, you know, that kind of stuff happened. No. This was just as improbable and insane back then as it would be now. For Mary to respond this way makes just as little sense back then as it would today. It would have been expected that Mary, a young, teenage, unwed girl, would have this vision of an angel. The angel would say, God is bringing his son to the planet and the way he is going to arrive is through your womb. The expectation would be that Mary would say, no, uh-uh. There is no way. Are you kidding? That's insane. That would have been the expectation. And yet that's not, that's not how Mary responds. She responds with belief. And she responds with gratitude. And she responds by recognizing that God is mighty, that he's able. That word mighty in the original language of the text, Greek, Koine Greek, is the word dunatos. And dunatos is the adjective form of the Greek noun dunamis. And the reason the word dunamis sounds somewhat familiar to you is because the Greek word dunamis is the word from which we get the English word dynamite. So an angel tells Mary, you are going to have a baby. And that baby is the savior of the world, the promised one. And Mary's response is, holy smokes, this is insane, dynamite. Like God is dynamite, is what she says. And essentially what she means is, God has power that I cannot possibly know or understand. That's Mary's response. And she's probably 12 or 13 at the time. So shame on 42, 43, I forget my age sometimes, four, I'm, or I'm in denial. <laughs> shame on 27 cynical me, you know? If I say it enough, that's the age I am, right? Right, I'm, I'm like, there's a good chance I am 30 years older today than Mary was when this story took place. And in my wisdom gained over the years, I'm cynical. It's like, well, that's the Christmas story. That's what God does back then. There's no way he has that sort of explosive dynamite power today. This is because I, you and I both, we live in, again, the imminent frame, the post-enlightenment world. That's what makes belief in such power so difficult. But make no mistake, our inability to believe in God's true power, in the fact that Jesus is truly mighty, it's not because of the limitations of God's ability. It's, it's because of the limitations of human logic. The British writer, um, 19th century, beautiful. He's like a magician with words. G.K. Chesterton, in his book, Orthodoxy, he says it this way. It is the logician, the person driven by logic, who seeks to get the heavens into his head, and it is his head that splits. Uh, I'll show you the cover of an old book, 19th century book, called Flatland by a writer named Edwin Abbott Abbott. Does anybody know Flatland? Has anybody read Flatland? In the, yeah, okay, one, one or two, two people. Okay, in the first service, there were like three or four. 
it's a strange book. Um, and it, it's, it's, it's fantastical, and it's sort of like uh, this fictional tale that feels weird in a sort of fairy tale land, but it's really about like math and dimensions and stuff. Um, I do not pretend to understand. I am not good at math, but um, I'm going to try to explain to you because some of the some of this the premise behind the book has been immensely helpful for me in thinking about like the imminent frame and and how I have such human limitations in my understanding. So the short of it is this. The Flatland tells the story of, you guessed it, a place called Flatland. And in Flatland lives, um, and I'm going to take some creative license with his original story just so that it's cleaner and makes sense for us, but you'll get the gist of it. In Flatland lives a square. Okay? Now, square is going about his life in Flatland, hanging out with his friends, Circle and Triangle and others. But this is what square looks like when you are looking from above. Make sense? But square doesn't live in a two-dimensional reality. He is a two-dimensional reality, but he lives in a one-dimensional flatland. So from square's perspective, what does everybody look like? Very good. Everyone looks like this in flatland. Make sense? Because it's flatland. Everything's flat. So what Square sees, even though he's a two-dimensional reality, what Square and everybody else in flatland sees is a one-dimensional line everywhere they go. Now, one day, a three-dimensional water bottle decides, look down there, all those squares and circles and triangles look like they're having a good time. I'm going to go down and spend a little time with them. And three-dimensional water bottle plummets down and breaks into flatland. Now, you all, you can see the three-dimensional bottle and all of its beauty and glory, yes? But what does the three-dimensional bottle in flatland look like to all the flatlanders? What does he look like? He looks like this. Understand? Make sense? This is what bottle looks like in Flatland. Now, th- think about it this way. You all understand this because you all are three-dimensional creatures living in a three-dimensional world. Um, if you follow the science on this, I am not nearly smart enough to follow all of the science. But all, like Stephen Hawking and others, they do all sorts of research on on further dimensions, right? Fourth dimensions and fifth and sixth and seventh, whatever. Whether you understand that sort of thing or not, trying to fully grasp the might of God is like a two-dimensional creature living in a one-dimensional flatland trying to comprehend and understand and make sense of a three-dimensional reality. What that three-dimensional reality looks like in Flatland is a line. It does not mean, however, that the reality is simply a line, does it? And if God really is God, would it not make all the sense in the world that his reality and existence is beyond our human ability to understand and comprehend? If you could explain God fully, 
My suggestion would be, he is not God. If you could comprehend within the boundaries and limits of human intellect and ingenuity and and capacity, everything there is to know about God's motivations, his power, his ability, his love, his commitment, the story he is writing and how he is going about writing that story. If you and I, in our little minds, could comprehend it all, then that character would cease to be God. The writer Andrew Root, he describes it this way. He says, it is easier to conceive of God only as a flat concept, a kind of final contingent relation behind the curtain of all other explanation than to conceive of God as an acting and speaking agent in the world. One of the reasons why we have such a hard time, why I have such a hard time conceptualizing and comprehending God's might, his ability, the fact that Jesus is mighty, is not because he isn't, but because I can't quite understand. Now, there is an elephant in the room. Because some of us are sitting here and we're like, okay, Jay, I understand, conceptually fine. I'm a 2D creature living in a 1D world, trying to make sense of a 3D reality. I know I can't do that, fine, great. But I've been told for however long I've been going to church, that God is capable, he's mighty, whatever, but also that he's, he loves me. Like, Jay, you've said that to me. God loves me, he cares for me. So if he does, and he is capable, why is my life still so hard? That's the elephant in the room, correct? I, I have, first of all, if you are wondering that, you're not alone. Everyone in this room has wondered that at one point or another. Most in this room are wondering it today. I often wonder that question too. Romans 8, we know that the whole creation, not just people, literally the planet, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. We live, you and I, we live in a world that is groaning for redemption and restoration. And as we wait eagerly, as Paul says, for redemption, you and I, what I want most is an immediate display of God's might. What I want is an infinite, incomprehensible God who is writing a story across all of eternity, what I want is for that God to concentrate all of his power right here on the blip that is my life to fix my problem. Now, I do not say that to criticize that desire. That's what we all want. And I would take it further. God is in the work and in the business of doing exactly that. He is restoring and renewing, but he's doing so as a part of a much larger story than the blip that is your life. Here's what I've come to believe. God moves at his pace, not ours. And one of the reasons is because his desire is not primarily, now, I have to say this again. I do not mean that his desire is just blatantly not, no. His desire is not primarily to relieve our temporary troubles. He longs to relieve our temporary troubles. He does. 
But that's not his number one goal. God's desire is not primarily to relieve our temporary troubles. It is primarily to establish a permanent relationship. God's desire, first and foremost, is not to help you feel better today. It is to be close to you forever. And if he has to choose between helping you feel better today so that you can move on with your life or continuing to draw you close through whatever struggle or challenge you may be facing so that you might be with him and he might be with you forever, then he will choose forever every time. This is why, even though it doesn't make sense to us, it makes sense to him. Isaiah 55, God says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. Or 2 Peter chapter 3. Do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Sometimes God seems slow because God is not bound and limited to time the way we are. And what seems slow to us is, in God's hands, perfect timing. Because again, his greatest desire is not to relieve our temporary troubles, but to establish permanent relationship. And here's how God's might shows up most prominently, I think, through thick and thin. Psalm 34, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Paul's words in 2 Corinthians, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles. Even in those times when the way he is moving and the way his might is being displayed may not, not make sense to us, the great gift we have is that he is close. He's near. And this might be the greatest display of his might imaginable. That the God of the universe draws near to broken people like me and broken people like you. And if we don't want to be, we never have to be alone. I'm going to invite Mark and the team to come back up. And we're going to sing and respond together here in a moment. I want to um, show you a photo here. These are two side-by-side -side photos of um, an extreme hike in Colorado called the Manitou Incline. Has anybody ever been to the Manitou Incline? Anybody? Did you climb it? No, you did not. She's like, no. Are you insane? Um, well done, because it, it's brutal. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Man Manitou Springs is a town right outside of Colorado Springs. And the Manitou Incline, what you see here, um, the picture on the left, I think, is, is near the bottom and the picture from the uh, on the right is like near the top. It's about two-thirds of the way up. Um, the Manitou Incline is an extreme hike in Manitou Springs, just outside of Colorado Springs. 
and the average grade of the Manitou incline is 45 degrees. That's average. At certain points, it's so steep, it's 68 degrees. It is so steep at certain points that you're not really walking up steps. You're like basically climbing ladders. Now, here's the other thing you need to know. Um, everyone calls Denver the Mile High City. Colorado Springs is like an hour or two away from Denver. Colorado Springs is higher in elevation than Denver by almost 1,000 feet. So the elevation in Colorado Springs, just the city of Colorado Springs, is about 6,500 uh, feet above sea level. That's 1.2 miles above sea level. So at the base of the Manitou Incline, you're already 1.2 miles above sea level. And if any of you have ever done any strenuous exercise at um, elevation, you know exactly where this is going. It feels different. Like your lungs burn, your legs are heavy. You don't feel it when you're casually walking around, but once you start like putting any strain on your body at elevation, it, it does not take long. Like right away, you're like, oh, I am going to die. <laughs> like this is what death feels like. So at the base of the Manitou Incline, you are already 1.2 miles above sea level, meaning the air is thin, and the moment you start climbing, your lungs are burning and your legs feel like they are shackled to the ground. And in just less than a mile, you climb from the base to the peak of the Manitou Incline, you climb almost 2,000 feet to 8,600 feet above sea level. In May of this past year, May of 2022, I did this climb. Let me show you a photo of me about halfway up. That's halfway up. Do not clap. No, don't clap. It was not awesome. I know the picture looks awesome. It's like, oh my gosh, Jay, what a stud. I was not a stud. I, internally, I was like fighting tears. Every step I was like, I'm gonna turn around. This is dumb. Why am I doing this? This photo, I've got my, I'm like thumbs upping, right? Because my friend's taking a picture. Notice he is higher than me. And uh, he's like, hey man, smile. I was like, okay, so I faked it, but I'm not kidding. When I took this photo, I literally, I was like two things. One, this is physically the most intense thing I think I've ever done in my life. And two, like, I, I just want to go back down. It's like, I don't want to be here is what I was thinking. Because I'm halfway up and I can see what's ahead of me. I was like, there is no way. Like I couldn't even see the peak from where I was at this point. But I had some buddies with me and we kept climbing. I'll show you this next photo. This is me and my friends two hours later at the peak of Manitou. And these are just a bunch of um, pastor friends from all over the country. And some of them are like physical studs and the rest of us are not. But I'm not kidding you guys, like... Some of them were collegiate athletes, even the collegiate athletes. Once we were at the top, they were like, what in the world was that? <laughs> like, why? Why did we do this? Until we sat and drank some water, and then I took a photo of our view. I'll show you that photo. The horizon you see in this photo, you are so high up that that horizon is the state of Kansas, you can see Kansas from the peak of Manitou Incline. The journey to the peak did not seem possible to me. I'm not kidding. Literally, until my feet stepped up onto the final step, I was like, I don't know if I can do this. And it was one of the most 
strenuous, physically strenuous and physically painful things I've ever done. All the women who have had children in the room are like, get out. <laughs> like, try birthing a human. I never will, so this is it, you guys. Don't judge me. But I made it. I made it to the top. And I didn't, I didn't make it to the top because I was, like, in tip-top shape. I didn't make it to the top because I'm awesome. I didn't make it to the top even because I'm necessarily able on my own. I actually don't. Here's what I know. If I was there by myself, I guarantee you I would not have made it to the top. I made it to the top because I wasn't alone. I had six, seven other guys with me who were feeling the same pain, and they just, we kept saying to each other, okay, deep breath, one more step. Deep breath, one more step. And they gave me the energy, the fuel, the strength I needed to reach the peak. Makes me think of Paul's words in Philippians 3. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And so, I love this word, somehow. What is that word, you guys? That is Paul saying, the imminent frame does not matter here. Somehow. I don't, I don't know. The human mind cannot comprehend how the power of Christ's resurrection works. Somehow, though, somehow, beyond human comprehension, I want to attain the resurrection from the dead. Math and science can't explain it. Somehow, resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained all this, though. Not that God has relieved all my temporary troubles. No, not that. Not that I've already arrived at the goal, because I haven't. But I press on. I press on to take hold of that. And here's the key. Hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. So what mountain is before you? What impossible challenge are you facing? What, what is it that the world and your own mind whispers to you, man, there is no way. I understand you're a Christian. I understand you believe in the whole God, Jesus, fairy dust thing. But in reality, there is no way. This is insurmountable. What is that mountain? I wanna ask you to take a few moments, everybody in the room, and whether you're a Christian or not, religious or not, doesn't matter. I just want to ask everyone in the room, we'll dim the lights a little bit. I just want to ask you to close your eyes for a second. Just everybody close your eyes. Just so that there's um, uh, a freedom to be honest here. So with every eye closed, I want to ask a few questions about the mountain you are facing. Maybe my guess is that in this holiday season especially, there are some of us who when we think about the mountain in front of us, we think about tension or strife in a relationship. It might be in our family. It might be in a dating relationship or a friendship. It might be in your marriage or a relationship with parents or a relationship with kids or some tension in a relationship at work with a coworker, whatever it might be. For some of us, the mountain we are facing is tension and strife in a relationship. If that is you, I just want to ask you, with every eye closed, to raise your hand so I can see you. Raise it high so I can see. Yeah. 
a lot of tension and strife in relationships. Christ, our mighty God, is with you. Now, if you have uncertainty in your life, maybe it's with work, school, finances, maybe a a specific situation you are navigating, where the mountain in front of you is, you don't know how this is going to work out at work or at school, maybe financially. If that is you, I want you to raise your hand. Just raise it high. Yeah, it's a lot of that. Christ, our mighty God, is with you. You're not climbing alone. And finally, I want to ask, this is bigger, broader, and more personal. Some of us in this room, the mountain that casts its dark shadow over us at all times of life is guilt or shame because of our past, things we've done or things that have been done to us, the stuff that we are so embarrassed to share um, to anyone or speak out loud. For some of us, it's not the past, it's the future. It's just paralyzing fear and anxiety about how uncertain the future is. And so for those of us in the room for whom the mountain before us is guilt or shame about the past or fear or anxiety about the future, if that is you, I want to ask you to raise your hand and raise it high. Christ is with you. Christ, our mighty God, is with you. No matter the mountain, no matter how tall, no matter how ominous, no matter how impossible it seems, Christ, our mighty God, who has come and is coming again, is with us. He does not leave us. He's near us in our brokenness and our pain. And with him by our side, we can keep pressing on, preparing room for his power, his might, and pressing on one step at a time. Let's open our eyes, stand, sing, and respond together.